Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest to help us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And this week it is truly wonderful to welcome back with us Rav Professor Rachel Edelman, who is Professor of Hebrew Bible at Boston's Hebrew College. She holds a PhD in Hebrew literature from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and is author of The Return of the Repressed, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer and the Pseudepigrapher, and also The Female Rus, Women's Deception and Divine Sanction in the Hebrew Bible, and the forthcoming Daughters in Danger from the Hebrew Bible to Modern Midrash. Professor Edelman, you've explored with us now a number of different parshiot and most recently the Haggadah. It's wonderful to have you with us and we very much look forward to exploring Bechukotai with you today. Thank you so much for that introduction, Simon. Uh, and it's great to be back here. And it's quite an honor to explore the last chapter of Vayikha, the last parasha of Vayikha, the book of Leviticus together. So we're in Parashat Bechukotai, which begins with this statement, In Bechukotai telehu, if you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, etc., etc. So if you follow in my laws, and what we have as the centerpiece of this concluding statement of are a series of blessings and curses. It kind of seals the deal at the covenant of Sinai at, at, at Har Sinai because that whole this whole parasha actually begins with Bahar, where it says Bahar Sinai at the mountain of Sinai. This is what was stated. So what we're having is we have at this point a flashback to what concluded the covenant that was given over to the people way back when right, when, with the giving of the Torah. And what concludes that is these series of blessings and curses. So my two questions that I have is why do we hark back to Sinai at the opening, right, as a prelude to these curses and blessings? And how do we, what foreshadowing do we have at the end of the history of this period, let's say the end of the sojourn within the land of Canaan, the land of, uh, of Israel that ends the book, the whole book of the Tanakh. I would like to suggest what happens in these blessings and curses is anticipated with the concluding statements in Divrayamim, the Book of Chronicles. 
Okay, so let me say this much about the blessings and curses. It belongs to a paradigm known by biblical scholars as the suzerain treaty. That is uh, Sumerian and Akkadian suzerain treaties are that which was a treaty that was established, written between a king and his vassal nation, the nation that he's conquered. And that suzerain treaty is always sealed by a series of blessings and curses. So it begins with a historical preamble, and then there are conditions, and then then it ends with, with blessings and curses. And that's what we have here as well. So, so the Treaty of Sinai, right, the relationship between God and Israel is like a suzerain, that is a king, and his people, whom he, right, whom he God liberated from Exodus, and therefore can establish, now you are my people, I am your God, and the consequences of not following and remaining loyal to my laws will be curses. The consequences of following my laws will be blessings. So what we have here is a list of 30 uh, of, I think there's, if you walk in my laws, there are 13 consequent blessings verses three to 13 in chapter 26. And the consequences of not heeding the law of walking contrary to God that is against God's will, translated as keri is a really interesting word, but let's say spurn my rules, reject my rules, then 30 curses will result. And that's uh, what's listed from verses 14 through 40. And the Torah reader generally has the liturgical practice of reciting these curses very quickly and barely audibly at the Torah reading. So I want to consider one bone-chilling passage in the curses, which is concerned with the fate of the land. And the key word in the passage derives from the word shin memem, which means to make desolate, to lay waste, or to be appalled. And it appears no less than six times in five verses. So with your permission, I'm going to read these verses. It begins in Leviticus 26, and God says, so if you walk against me, right, then I will spurn you. I will lay your cities in ruin. And I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not savor your pleasing order, orders. I will make the land desolate. Also, Hashimoti et ani et I will make the land desolate. 
ושממו עליה אויביכם היושבים בה. And your enemies who settled in it will be appalled. And you, will, and you, I will scatter among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword against you. Your land shall become a desolation. Again, that word, shomema, shmama. And your cities will be ruined. And then, this is another meaning of the term, and then shall the land make up for its Sabbaths years throughout the time that it is desolate. Again, that word, hashema. The land is desolate. That whole time that you are in exile, the land will lay claim to its Sabbaths. That is, the land will rest and make up for its Sabbath years. Throughout the time that it is desolate, again, that word hashema, tishpot, it shall observe the rest that it did not observe in your Sabbath years while you were dwelling. So there's this strange kind of relationship between the period of exile and the desolation of the land and the core neglect of the Shemitah year the sabbatical year. Fascinating idea. So the desolation of, of the land is God's response, the neglect of mitzvot, right? The failure to fulfill God's commandment, right? their failure to let, walk in God's uh, mitzvot and his laws, but particularly with regard to the justice in the use of land. And the two cornerstones of that are what we read about in Bahar, in the previous parasha, the previous reading, about Shemitah and Yovel. So there are two, it's maybe three principles that undergird the Shemitah. That is, all indentured slaves should be free. All those that um, put themselves in service of others in order to pay off their debts shall be released from that enslavement. All debts, monetary debts, shall be remitted. And wealth should not be accumulated in the form of land in the hands of the few. Rather, in the Yovel year, in the 50th year, which is seven times seven Sabbaths, all holdings shall return to the original landowners or their heirs. In fact, that principle of returning the land to the original landowners undergirds what we read about as the act of redemption in the book of Ruth. Very few people make this connection. What is the innovation that Boaz introduces to the law as he says to Mr. So-and-so, Plony Almoni, in chapter six, he says, yeah, you should redeem the land. You're the closest of kin. 
But when you redeem Naomi's land that has gone out of her family because she had to sell off her land to pay for your debts or, or they went into escrow or mortgages or whatever land was foreclosed upon, you have to buy the land. But he says, in order for the redemption to be fulfilled, you also have to acquire the widow of Machlon, Ruth, and marry her so that there will be an heir to Naomi, Naomi who will then inherit the land. And of course, plenty on the money. Mr. So-and-so says, oh, I don't want to blemish my estate, meaning marrying a Moabite woman is a little problematic, or maybe maybe it's because of the Moabite woman. Maybe it's because he doesn't want to impair his inheritance for his own children. He said, you go ahead. You're next in line for kinship. You go ahead and you act the role of the Redeemer. What undergirds this act of land redemption, which is detailed in chapter 25 of Leviticus, is land should not accumulate in the hands of the wealthy. There's an an egalitarian purpose that undergirds the Yovelier and the idea of returning the land to its original inhabitants, its, its original heirs. I might be able to bring it home by an example. So one of the crises in the United States with agriculture, big agroeconomics, is that as farmers accrue debt, they lose jurisdiction over their land and they have to sell it. It, It goes into foreclosure, the banks take possession of it, and then wealthier landowners who have resources just buy up the land. So what we have is we have 900 million acres of agricultural land in the United States that are in the hands of 2% of the population of the United States of America. That's big agribusiness. And it's a million dollar business. So the small landholders can't afford to farm their own land anymore. Now that would never be sustainable in Israel. Okay, it would never be in the land of Israel, in ancient Israel, that would not be as sustainable because we have this practice, supposedly, with this practice that the land would all return to the original owners. And what in fact you are doing when you buy land is you're leasing it, like you would lease a car, up to a certain amount of years counting towards the Yovel. And then in the Yovel, it all returns. And the Yovel is also a Shemitah year where you can't actually farm the land. So this is not an accumulation of wealth in the hands. So it's basically an egalitarian principle that undergirds this. Now, the justification for this return to the land, it's really beautiful verse. One of my favorite verses is, The land must be not be sold into perpetuity, that is, beyond reclaim. For to me, the land belongs to me, i.e. God. 
For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Okay? So you're strangers and sojourners. Now, the same idea, the same basic idea of the land is my land, therefore you don't have an absolute right to that land, undergird Shemitah. And the idea that the land needs to be released, it needs to have a claim to rest. It needs to have a Shabbat, right, every seven years. So I want to think then, Begador, in, in a big way, in a, in a broad way, about how this letting the land lay fallow is related to what is described in the curses, which is the exile of the Israelites, anticipating the Babylonian exile, and how that exile is commensurate with the sins of the people, and specifically the abrogation of the Shemitah and Yovel, the Jubilee years. Okay? So Rashi on uh, Vayikha 26, verse 35, he does an interesting calculation. It's very elaborate, but I'll summarize it. But Rashi on verse 35, which talks about the claim of the land to its Sabbath, says that, oh, this is mathematically genius because there were 70 years of Babylonian exile. And there were 490 years where the people were obligated to keep the Shemitah year and did it. So do the math, 490 divided by seven, and you get 70 years of exile. And he does the calculation based on the beginning, the onset of the first Commonwealth period, the, the first days of the settlement of the land under Joshua, through the time of the establishment of the temple by Solomon, culminating in its destruction, the temple's destruction, in 586 BCE. 70 years, not 490 years. And then how do we calculate the 70? It's a little bit more complicated. They go into exile in 586 BCE. And then Cyrus decrees in 533 BCE that they all return. And the temple is completed, I think, about 515 BCE. So 586 to 515 BCE, approximately 70 years from the destruction to the establishment of the second temple. It's beautiful. And this is what Jeremiah predicted. He decreed that indeed there would be seven years of exile comparable to the 70, the, the periods that the Shemitah year wasn't observed, that whole period of five, 490 years during this first commonwealth. Okay. In fact, that's how the whole Tanakh ends. In Divrayamim, I'm going to read from Second Chronicles, verse 36. It's quite a striking passage. And we read, 
So they, that is the Babylonians, burned the house of God and tore down the wall of Jerusalem, burned down all its mansions and consigned all, consigned all its precious objects to destruction. Those who survived the sword, he exiled to Babylon, and they became his and his son's servants till the rise of the Persian kingdom. In fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, until the land paid back its Sabbaths, as long as it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath till 70 years were completed. So I just want to read that in Hebrew. So ad ratzta haaretz et shabtoteha, until the land lay claim. The land desired and fulfilled that desire of laying claim to its Sabbath, its Shabtoteha, all the days, kol yamei hashama, that's that root, shin mem mem, all the days that it lay desolate in fulfillment of the seven years of exile. And that's what Jeremiah predicted would happen. So there's a there's something a schooling of consciousness that comes with the arc what i would say the holiness code or the holiness school as canol described it that the ethical imperative of the holiness of land and the holiness of people as uniquely god's land and god's people is shaped by our relationship to letting the land have its release, letting the people be released from servitude. And that consciousness is really special and very unique. And I think I would say it's, it's a kind of a proto-climate awareness idea of being conscious that we're more than there are laws of nature that are bigger than us that we are part of nature we are subject to nature and not holy rulers over nature yeah there's much more to say about that but i feel that really the earth bears witness the earth lays claim the earth cries out resisting our overworking of the land and it will vomit us out if we are undeserving of this land. So we're in crisis. We're in, we're in a we're in a climate crisis, an environmental crisis, and this consciousness of the Shemitah year and the and the Yovel year, the Jubilee year, helps school us and sensitize sensitizes us to to that to that consciousness. So Kafka once said. A great book should be the axe for the frozen sea within us. And I feel that Leviticus has the power to do that for us and break the frozen sea within our hearts. And yet I want to say, let those icebergs and the ice of the South Pole and the North Pole stay frozen. Professor Edelman, thank you so much for such a, a wonderful um, exploration uh, and making it so relevant and pertinent 
to today. And also that wonderful Kafka ending. I don't think we've had Kafka yet on between the <laughs> So great to bring in Kafka. Maybe just one question. You made so many connections with the curses in various ways that we read, obviously, at the, right at the end of the book of Leviticus. I, I wonder, in your thinking, how you draw parallel with the curses towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. It's really interesting that both Deuteronomy and Leviticus end with these series of, of blessings and curses. So I think, so the blessings and curses at the end of Leviticus are associated with the first covenant, which is established with the giving of the Torah at Har Sinai. And that's why Bahar Sinai, right? That all opens that section. And Deuteronomy is in Arvot Moab, the plains of Moab. And that's where Moses' whole swan song at the end of the 40-year sojourn in the desert takes place. So there the covenant is renewed. And similarly, that renewal of the covenant is sealed by blessings and curses. And there... In that covenant, it doesn't only anticipate the Babylonian exile, but it also anticipates the hiding of God's face. I will surely hide my face. And in that sense, it feels very pertinent to the 21st century. So I think Deuteronomy has a different spin on the exile, it's much more overtly theological in some ways. It's different theology, but, but this is much more focused on holiness of land and people in the way that I like the way that Israel Canal beautifully articulated it in his discussion with you. He talked about Kedoshim, Parashat Kedoshim. So this is the end of that holiness code. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us again and taking us to the end of Vayikra. I can't believe we've now completed three. Three uh, books, yeah. Three, three books, and and we enter by mid by next week. Okay. Well, thank you, Simon, and Shabbat Shalom to all our listeners. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out all about our exciting content on our mothership, JewishQuest.org, JewishQuest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again next week. Mm-hmm.